0: Every new industry and venture has its stable of celebrities. Zeppelin pilots were the astronauts of the 1920s and 30s. Like rock stars, their movements and comments were chronicled constantly. And Charles Rosie Rosendahl was one of the most famous pilots in America. Not surprisingly, he was a huge proponent of these whales of airships. His career depended on it. But Rosie's insistence that the Hindenburgs' crash was the result of sabotage just didn't add up, and the official investigation that followed was inconclusive. Best-selling author and former Wall Street Journal reporter Michael McCarthy continues his search, separating truth from fiction, and uncovers an easily overlooked, missing piece to the Hindenburg puzzle. Episode 2, The Whistleblower. A living eyewitness to the Hindenburg disaster was a big help to me early on. Yes, there's at least one left. Mark Heald is 90 and was 8 years old in 1937, living in New Jersey, not far from Lakehurst. I met with him in his home in Tennessee. Even now, he still talks about Zeppelin technology in the lingo of the past. In the 1930s, Zeppelins had a clunky description. They were flying machines that were lighter than air. Airplanes? heavier than air. Well, I lived
1: in in Princeton, New Jersey, which is about 35 miles, I think, from uh, the Lakehurst Naval Air Station, where the dirigibles and blimps and whatnot were. And a child in the 1930s, which was sort of the the glory days of of lighter-than-aircraft technology, we could hear the distinctive sound of the dirigibles heavy motors in slow motion and so not changing position rapidly. And we'd often run out and watch them circle around the, uh, the high school and go back home. So it was interesting to see this thing with the name Hindenburg written in German uh, characters um, and, uh, uh, and and with swastikas. and and to see it live. This was pre-war, so the the war was not yet on, but we were well aware of what was going on in in Germany and with the meaning of the swastika.
0: Soon after, he would see the Hindenburg again. On Thursday evening, May 6, 1937, little Mark Heald and his parents are out for a joyride. They head to Lakehurst to watch the Hindenburg land. There was a nice place to park there uh, where we could sit
1: in the car which had a bench front seat, and little uh, eight-year-old me was in the middle between my father and my mother. I was the only child. And
0: uh, we, ha- we had a-, a ringside view of the whole scene. The window is rain speckled. Eight-year-old Mark looks on in awe. The Hindenburg nose is close to its mooring mast, a metal tower on the ground. As soon as we saw what it was happening, my father said, oh my goodness,
1: the thing's aflame. When we saw a little fire o- over the tail, the uh, craft was sort of presented to us sideways so that we had a good view of front to back of it. So there was this small blue flame over the, over the tail and uh, which spread along the ridge of the, of the craft and then all hell broke loose with it. Uh, as soon as we saw what was happening, uh, my father knew that the... Local roads were going to be crowded with emergency vehicles of various sorts, and so we got the heck out of there. We were very surprised that there were any survivors at all.
0: I found Mark healed because his father was quoted in a 1964 Hindenburg book. A boyhood recollection could be questionable now. After all, Mark was a child, and the catastrophe did take place more than 80 years ago. I head to the National Archives to see if I can find other witness accounts that confirm the Heald's version. Inside the large glass-and-steel building, there is a big open room with dozens of tables, security cameras, and librarians walking around monitoring activity. I carefully search folder after folder and find convincing testimony from six witnesses. Each said the same thing. Each saw a small flame appear for several seconds at the top back end of the ship, before the Hindenburg roared into flames. It's just not possible for a bomb to have created a steady, ongoing flame and then erupt. It would be one immediate explosion. Eyewitness testimony simply rules out any possibility of a bomb's exploding. It didn't happen. So why? Why did the sabotage theory linger so long? Two books published in the 1970s reported that the Hindenburg had been bombed Neither had convincing evidence whatsoever. They were sensational tales without facts to back them up. One of the books was made into a Hollywood movie starring George C. Scott and Anne Bancroft. She was the Countess. In reality, there was no Countess. And no bomb. Both books gratefully acknowledged the assistance of one man, Charles Rosie Rosendahl, America's top cheerleader for airships. I've been on Rosendahl's trail for months, and while searching at the National Archives, I come upon a blistering letter Rosendahl wrote a month after the tragedy to a Hindenburg investigator. Rosendahl is discrediting the character of one German passenger, a Mr. Leonhard Adelt. Adelt was on the Hindenburg when it caught fire. Running away from the flames on the ground, he survived. He was one of the 62 lucky survivors. I've stumbled upon a blockbuster piece of evidence that will take me weeks to figure out. Rosendahl's words and tone are surprisingly dismissive. With regard to the letter from Mr. Adelt,
1: I doubt the advisability of calling him as a witness. There were so many stories in the press attributable or connected to him that he must have used his imagination very freely. Furthermore, with Mr. Adelt's lack of technical knowledge of airships, I cannot help but doubt the accuracy of his recollections. Of course, all of Mr. Adult's information is secondhand.
0: He does not have anything of first-hand information. Why is Rosie trashing this guy? I need to find the original adult letter. The next day, I return to the National Archives, and after some frantic searching, I find it. Three pages, handwritten in black ink, in German. Thankfully, investigators translated the letter into English. I give it a quick read, but stuff it away to read more closely later. Three weeks pass. I'm back home in Michigan. All the National Archives documents I've copied are in my basement, in boxes. That adult letter suddenly pops into my head. What did he write exactly that set Rosendahl off? I head to the basement. The letter writer, Leonard Audit, was a journalist and friend of another Zeppelin captain, Ernst Lehman. I know this because Adult is briefly mentioned in other Hindenburg accounts. He always seemed like a minor character though, a sidekick of the little captain. Adult had just spent months helping Lehman write a memoir of his Zeppelin experiences, their confidants. Lehman is a bigwig in the Zeppelin company and one of the most experienced aviators in the world. I suddenly take it in. Adult is telling them that Captain Lehman warned him about a structural flaw in the Hindenburg shortly before the disaster, a problem that, if not resolved, would mean hydrogen could leak from the ship and cause a catastrophe. And suddenly it dawns on me, Otto is a whistleblower and shares Captain Lehman's concerns. He was
1: worried, since the gas cell had been found to have worn through on the upper hanging side when the Hindenburg was overhauled over the winter. He said to me, quote, what if the damage had happened during a trip Aware to happen again to another gas cell? His concern was increased by the fact that the young next generation lacked the decades of practical experience that the older people had in fixing things. And it was
0: primarily for this reason that he came along on the trip, in order to keep an eye on them. Winter overhaul? Gas bag damage? Worn through? In the books I've read so far on the Hindenburg, none mentions any of this. Could this explain the mystery of how hydrogen was leaking? Over 25 years, the Germans had mastered the technique of constructing gas-type fabric containers, massive sacks called gas cells. The Hindenburg had 16 of them running the entire length of the ships. The Germans fully understood the peril, and they had mastered making gas bags that just didn't leak. And as I've said, the smallest spark spells disaster if there is a hydrogen leak. To put the adult letter in context, we have to back up a bit. Two weeks before the Hindenburg disaster, Captain Lehman's only child, a two-year-old son named Love, suddenly dies. Lehman's wife, Marie, is distraught. It is a terrible time to leave his grieving wife to fly over the Atlantic Ocean on a troubled Zeppelin. There are going to be several other capable captains on board. They didn't need him. But Lehman feels a duty to be there, according to Adult's letter, to help in case things go wrong. To impress his anguish upon his friend, Lehman resorted to poetry, to a German ballad. Both men grew up in southern Germany. They both knew a ballad about a horseman called The Rider of Lake Constance. It's sort of like our poem about Paul Revere's ride. Unlike that midnight ride through Boston, the German ballad recounts how a horseman gets lost in fog and gallops across a frozen-over lake, gigantic Lake Constance in southern Germany. In German, the lake is called the Bodensee. The rider of Lake Constance stops. He suddenly realizes he has clip-clopped for miles perilously over thawing ice, and he drops dead from horror. Lehman, the veteran Zeppelin man, was anxious, very worried about the structural problem just discovered during the overhaul of the Hindenburg. Lehman had flown the Hindenburg early in its maiden season, and he was so terrified to learn of the leak hazard that he looked adult in the eyes and said,
1: It occurs to me as if I actually was the Reiter am Bodensee. He said to me, what if the damage had happened during a trip, or were to happen again to another gas cell?
0: Put less poetically, the little captain told his friend he was despondent, scared to death. After the Hindenburg crash, Lehman is treated in the hospital at the Navy base there. He managed to escape the wreckage after the Hindenburg struck the ground. He is in dire shape. He doesn't know it, but he is about to die. Most of his back has burnt off. He is barely able to speak. He sees his friend, Adult in the hospital. Adult, his hands burned, spots Captain Lehman, in worse condition, stooped over on a table. Happy to see that Lehman had survived, Adult writes that he couldn't help but ask, What caused it? Lightning strike. Lightning. I think about the historical record, the previous books on the Hindenburg. This is puzzling. In his later writings about the Hindenburg, Commander Rosendahl reiterated what he told the FBI privately. He wrote that he also saw Lehman in the hospital just before he died. Rosie said that the little captain on his deathbed blamed an entirely different cause. Some sort of bomb. In Lehman's own words, according to Rosendahl, a quote, infernal machine. So, is it lightning or a bomb? Adult is Lehman's friend. Rosendahl isn't. Is someone lying? I find myself thinking about one of my favorite books, All the King's Men. It was published in 1946 by a wonderful writer and poet, Robert Penn Warren. It's about power and evil. In the novel, a main character named Jack is a reporter. He discusses his suspicions about someone and how he looks into them. He likens his process to tapping along a wall and waiting until he hears a hollow sound. When you reach that spot, you open the wall. It's a hiding place for a secret will, some contraband, some evidence someone wanted to hide. The book has one of my favorite quotes, a mantra, that has guided me my whole career as a journalist and author. Truth is what I sought without fear or favor, and let the chips fly. I bring this up because I'm suddenly puzzled by other discrepancies. These ones involve Eckner directly. As I'm searching for answers on the Hindenburg, I find that Eckner changed his story on whether he ever tried to get fireproof helium for the Hindenburg. And he changed his story on whether he really tried to keep the Nazis from exploiting his Zeppelins. I'm starting to think there may be a larger deception here. I need to corroborate the structural flaw in the Hindenburg, the one that could explain the remaining mystery of the disaster, how hydrogen was leaking. Maybe Otto was wrong. Maybe it really didn't cause the disaster. I need something more. And the search would take me to Dallas. Dallas? Charles Rosendahl died in 1977 at age 84. His wife sent all his personal and office files to be housed at the Aviation Archive at the University of Texas in Dallas. The Rosendahl Collection has more than 300 boxes of memos, memorabilia, and photos. This guy kept everything There have to be answers, I think, somewhere in there. Adolf's whistleblower letter is a great start, but I'm going to need more evidence. I spend two days looking through several crucial boxes. Page after page produces next to nothing. I've gone through what I think are all the promising records in the Rosendahl collection, but maybe I've missed something. I have a whole other day tomorrow in Dallas. I decide to try some different boxes, though I'm getting pretty discouraged. I get nearly all the way through the new set of boxes when I'm thrilled to find something. The winter overhaul work list. Reading through it with my heart pounding, I get to the end. Nothing about the structural flaw. Dead end. I'm really about ready to give up. I open one more folder. There before my eyes, a memo titled, quote, gas cell chafing. It talks about the winter overhaul of the Hindenburg. It talks about a troubling discovery of chafing on a gas bag. Workers in Frankfurt discovered the chafing in the winter of 1936. This is exactly what the whistleblower revealed. Technicians cut out sections of the damaged gas bag and had them tested. They found the fabric strength had been reduced by 30%. That made the gas bag much more vulnerable to leaking. This isn't just the report of a Hindenburg passenger. This is a memo about the damage with technical specifics. It also spelled out how workmen then used twine and tape to tie off portions of gas cell wiring. The idea was to limit unwanted vibrations that were evidently wearing away at the meticulously designed gas bags. For its second season of flying, the Hindenburg was bandaged up. To avert ruptures in the giant hydrogen gas bags Workers resorted to string and tape, a temporary solution, while they resolved how to dampen the excessive fluttering of the outer cover. The records show that the large outer cover of the Zeppelin was vibrating entirely too much. The massive ship was wrapped in seven acres of aeronautical cloth, the whole silvery skin that enveloped the Hindenburg. And the whole ship, the largest ever flown, was acting dangerously like, well, a snare drum. When a drummer strikes a drumhead, it sends a vibration down to a snare of wires, which resonate and rattle. The Hindenburg's outer cover had an unwanted flutter, like drumsticks, tapping out a roll. And that vibration set the gas cell wires rattling destructively. As one engineer's memo put it, quote, "...the conclusion drawn..." was that the flutter from the outer cover was transmitted to the wiring, which picked up the vibration and caused a chafing of the cell. Huh. Listen closely at the end when the drum roll stops. You can hear the rattle of the metal snares briefly. On the Hindenburg in spots, that wiring rattled constantly, but the connection was apparently kept under tight wraps. Some workers at the Zeppelin factory were aware of the excessive flutter from the outer cover. Very few seemed to know about the damage to the gas cell discovered in the overhaul. Fluttering outer cover. This suddenly makes a lot of sense. On its final trip, the Hindenburg was delayed ten whole hours. There were heavy headwinds over the Atlantic. Just before the ship caught fire, the outer cover took a beating. How on earth did this telling memo end up in Dallas with Rosendahl's papers? To answer that, we have to back up and talk about a company that, to this day, still flies these contraptions, Goodyear. In the mid-1930s, some Goodyear technicians left headquarters in Akron, Ohio, and camped out at the Zeppelin factory. They were allowed in there to observe the construction of the Hindenburg. It was a gesture of goodwill on the part of Germany, which had superior airship technology to the Americans. It was through that same partnership campaign that U.S. Navy officers— including Charles Rosendahl, got to fly on the -the state-of-the-art German ships, including the Hindenburg. Sometimes the Goodyear technicians wrote their own notes. Sometimes they translated them from German maintenance records. Some of their notes and records eventually ended up in Dallas and in a completely unexpected place. I just happened upon the wrong box. Or, it turns out, the right box. Within a few months... I will go to another aviation library, this one in Wichita, Kansas. I search for more answers there. One little relic intrigues me. From one of the boxes there, I pick up and feel a super light piece of girder from the Hindenburg. It's about four inches long. It's rectangular with holes punched to lighten it. It's like a hunk of Swiss cheese. After months of exhaustive research of being stuck in the abstract, I love touching this piece of history. It crosses my mind it would be a nice inspiration for me, sitting on my desk as I write at home. (sighs) I put it back in the box. All this time, I can't stop thinking about Hugo Eckner. He was in charge of the Zeppelin Company when the Hindenburg was built, and afterward. He knew everything that was going on. In May of 1937, after the disaster, he returned to America to testify to investigators. They asked him if he knew what had caused the disaster. He said he couldn't imagine. He even came up with speculation. Maybe the pilot steered the ship too sharply in a final turn over Lakehurst. That could have snapped an internal wire, causing it to puncture a gas bag and produce a fatal leak. Guess what? That speculation became the official conclusion of the government investigation. A sharp turn caused the catastrophe, most probably. But it was just a guess. Investigators were left in the dark about the flutter problem, the gas bag damage, adult's letter, and the sharp turn theory was unsupported by eyewitnesses on the scene. It was merely speculation from Hugo Eckner, who should have known better, who did know better.
1: Of course, you will realize yourself that in this moment, as long as investigation is pending, it is impossible, impossible for me to give you any statements or any ideas regarding the causes of the disaster.
0: After testifying, Eckner went back to Germany. He had his work cut out for him. He had to fix whatever went wrong on the Hindenburg with a sister model of the Zeppelin. Sistership? Yes, there was a second version of the Hindenburg. It was being built in Germany precisely when the Hindenburg caught fire. The second ship, model number LZ-130, was exactly the same as the Hindenburg LZ-129. Same length, same height, same dimensions all around. Was it headed for tragedy too? Eckner personally oversaw modifications to the sister ship. To tackle the design flaw in the Hindenburg, technicians changed the way they tightened the outer cover. Their measurements showed it was dramatically tighter than the Hindenburg's. They also painted the outer cover with different coatings, all to reduce flutter. Remember, they are trying to control some seven acres of fabric from fluttering violently in the wind. And they took other steps. From the maintenance records I found, they measured and remeasured the tightness of the outer cover. On the Hindenburg, the workmen previously tied off some of the gas cell wiring to protect the Hindenburg's gas bags from dangerous chafing. But they seem to have learned it wasn't enough. On the Hindenburg, the tie-off work was only at the very top of the ship. So, on the LZ-130, they fastened even more of the gas cell wiring, this time all the way down to the middle line of the ship, what they called the Equator. I will later learn something about the LZ-130 that makes me start calling her the evil twin sister of the Hindenburg. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Hindenburg. The story of my quest to get at the truth of this mysterious tragedy. For even more intrigue about The Hindenburg, you can find the book, The Hidden Hindenburg, at Amazon.com and other retailers, or try your old-fashioned library. You can also visit HiddenHindenburg.com. In the next episode, I look further into Rosendahl and Eckner. Was there something else to cover up?